Welcome to episode two of Folk Tunes and Englishness, a three-part series of podcasts in which we talk about English traditional music, its history, and how it's played and passed on today. I'm Dr Alice Little. I'm a research fellow in the Faculty of Music at the University of Oxford. I've been working on a Knowledge Exchange Fellowship with the English Folk Dance and Song Society to find out more about the 18th century tune books they have at the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library in London. These tune books are collections of tunes both in handwritten manuscripts and in print. In episode one, I spoke with Becky Price, Matt Coatesworth and Jeremy Barlow about the history of English folk music and about 17th and 18th century tune books. In this episode, we're talking about this repertoire in performance today. Who's playing it? What does it sound like? And does the idea of Englishness matter to performers and audiences? I'm joined by Sam Sweeney. Hi, (laughs) I'm Sam Sweeney. I am a fiddle player and fiddle teacher and I predominantly play traditional English repertoire. Rob Harbron. I'm Rob Harbron. I'm a concertina player, multi-instrumentalist. I play with the band Leverett with Sam. I'm a tune writer but I'm also really interested in finding the sort of the less played traditional tunes. And Alan Lamb. I'm Alan Lamb. I play cello, fiddle and viola d'amore and melodeon. I began by asking Rob if there even is such a thing as English music these days. I think there are bits of repertoire that you could definitely say that tune only occurs in England. Equally, there are loads of bits of repertoire, tunes that people would say were classic English tunes that have their origins in Ireland or Scotland or Wales or further beyond, you know, and a lot of what we call English music came in probably as European dance music The polka, for example, was a Europe-wide phenomenon. So I think there is some repertoire that you could say was specifically English, but I don't think that's what people really mean. (laughs) So what do they really mean when people call music English? I think there's an accent, if you like, to how people in England play the tunes they think of as English. So you could play the same tune and make it sound Irish or make it sound Scottish or make it sound what we think of currently as English But I think that's a more shifting phenomenon than people sometimes think. People think the music they're hearing now is how it always is and was and will be. But I think it shifts a lot. I'm Sam Sweeney. I released a record last March and most of the tunes on it are either written by me, but actually the majority are sort of from English collections. And I was due to do a radio interview about it. And it was weird. It was a Radio 4 thing. And the producer said to me, this album, it sounds so English. That was very much not on my tick list when I made this record at all. In fact, I was kind of trying to do, trying to do the opposite. But he sort of said in the notes that he sent me for the interview, he said, why? Tell us why your album sounds so English. And it was an interesting conversation because it's essentially the easiest thing to do is to say what it isn't. So it's obviously not Irish, it's obviously not Scottish, it's obviously not, you know, American. But to actually come up with positive things to affirmatively say, like, this is what English music sounds like, is far more difficult, I think, than to say what it isn't. 
my name's Alan Lamb, and I play in a band which normally plays music from the North Atlantic seaboard, which gives us a bit of scope, but is predominantly English, the repertoire. I think the traditions, certainly between England, Scotland and Ireland, have all been either partly consciously and partly unconsciously curated during their various revivals. There seems to have been much more common ground in the older collections. And actually, even the only recordings of fiddle players, we've got them. There's a huge number of things that mention Kerry or other traditions in them. So the term English, like Scottish, and regional terms like Kerry, are meant to be helpful labels, not hard and fast rules about how to play a tune. It's about indicating which tradition the tune belongs to, as Rob would say, what accent you might play it in. It's not a historical claim about where it came from, because we all know that so many tunes are shared in the repertoires of different nations. So when tunes are labelled English, how should we play them? What's our accent like? There is a particular sound that people who are immersed in English music seem to get. I play Irish music occasionally and play a range of Irish tunes normally. But if I'm in Ireland and I'm playing them, people find them almost unrecognisable, it seems. There's just a very different feel and approach to it. And yet... Many Irish players are actually English. You know, Shane McGowan, Andy Irvin, a whole list who've made major contributions to Irish music very successfully. I asked Rob to demonstrate a tune played in an English style. He's going to play the tune Mother Goose from William Winter's mid-19th century handwritten tune book. If I just play the, the bare notes of the tune... Well, if I play it with, I guess, what I might call my my um, modern English accent, musical accent. about the repertoire. Historically, lots of tunes have been shared across borders, but like any other nation, England has its own repertoire too. There seems to be two sources of repertoire. I'm very, very attached to a lot of the 18th century stuff. I think we all are. And the broadening in that direction has really put a lot of life into the English tradition. But those are tunes that were often written, I mean, Mr. Isaac's Maggot, He was Queen Anne's dancing master. Playford's English country dances, they weren't country dances as in peasant dances. They were for formal dances, for the better off. Some of those tunes have come right down. A tune like Fisher's Hornpipe has been played solidly since the 17th century in three or four traditions. Others, we're playing 18th century pop music. But whether that matters or not, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear how this affects the repertoire that we regard as English today. Do you pick up tunes in pubs or do you go to these historical tune books like The Dancing Master to find tunes to play? Sam? Certainly, from my perspective, the learning stuff orally in in sessions in pubs or whatever, that's an incredibly small part of my repertoire. Maybe there is such thing as an English folk tune canon, but it seems to me that the few English sessions I have attended, whether they be at festivals or places that I've lived, there seems to be a much smaller body of shared common repertoire in England than there is 
in other countries. So you can almost guarantee everybody in England would know Speed the Plough or the Princess Royal, not English. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, in my experience, it's much harder to go into a pub and find people who know the same tunes as you. And as such, certainly the work I've done with Rob over the last 10 years, it all involves going into these collections, whether they be on the Village Music Project website or things that have been published and you can buy in a book or whatever. So I would say a good 80% of my repertoire I've found in a book and probably 10% I've learned from Rob. (laughs) And then the other 10% is probably from pubs or summer schools or whatever. So I think that is quite unique. And I actually said that on a residential course I was doing in America in December. And they couldn't believe it because in other traditions, it's very much the other way around. It seems that the majority of repertoire is learn from sessions or social music making whereas for me anyway it's not like that here and rob when you're looking for new tunes to play do you seek out those in historical manuscripts or those in english sources perhaps how important is that to you i've kind of got a counter to that almost in that for me the historical nature of it is a byproduct rather than the thing i'm looking for what i'm looking for when i go tune hunting is a tune basically it's historic origins or not aren't really affecting me I'm not looking at it as a researcher I'm looking at it as a musician and I guess I'm looking for those 18th century pop songs and trying to make them into today's great tune things you know. So the historical nature of a tune and whether it's ever been considered English or not isn't a priority when you're seeking repertoire it's more about making sure it's a good tune and then you can bring to it your own style and interpretation. Alan is this the same for you? I also write quite a lot of tunes, which inevitably owe a lot to uh, the English, what there is of a canon of English music, but also to uh, Baroque stuff. And it's a very natural process. And I I think that's appropriate. I think it's one of the strengths of traditional music is that freedom to interpret and the freedom to sound like yourself. One of the factors, and I think one of the things that makes English music distinct is it's probably got a stronger connection to its dance tradition. The music I play now is aimed more firmly at concert performance. So we probably play faster a lot of the time. We've got the luxury of changing, you know, we don't have to follow a hornpipe with a hornpipe. So we can select a program that builds excitement and building and releasing tension into the thing in a way that's easier in the concert situation it would be at a dance and I've played in dance bands for years. We probably borrow some of the clothes off the better known Irish and Scottish traditions but I don't think it makes it any less English. Let's hear the Bellmans performed by the Sea Band. about your audiences when you play abroad do you sell your music as english it's as much about saying what you're not as what you are i mean for example leverett at rob and andy cutting and me we've toured in germany four or five times certainly on one poster we were listed as a scottish 
band. And I wouldn't say people were disappointed, but when you have the word Irish, Scottish or Celtic on your marketing as a label, it comes with certain expectations. That's not to say that all music from Ireland, Scotland or that has the label Celtic is remotely similar, but the stereotype that comes with that, particularly to an audience who isn't necessarily into that music, it has a stereotype and it has an aesthetic. So to say English, it <laughs> I don't think you're setting up an audience to expect something, but you're almost informing them what not to expect. I do use the word English on, on marketing and press releases and stuff, and I think it is helpful for people, but... I think it is not that useful in terms of describing what people's music is like. The first band that I was in that made a point of calling itself English, if you like, was a band called Dr Faustus, and that was about 2000, about 20 years ago. And I guess at that time, it really did feel like it was quite an unusual thing to be doing. There weren't all that many people playing English music aimed at a concert audience for art centres, theatres, etc. It's fantastic now that it feels like there are enough people playing English music and going out and performing it that it maybe doesn't have that, oh, I haven't heard of that before, kind of tag that it possibly did to some people. Is there a better way to categorise your music than English? Would you rather just call it folk music? People seem naturally to put music in boxes. And I guess that use of the term English feels more appropriate than just folk, which is a very wide term, or instrumental, which could include anything. So I just think it's a term of convenience. Do you think it matters where the members of your band are from when you're performing abroad? Sometimes organisers are absolutely desperate for us not to be English. <laughs> they did a gig at Gatorn in Holland recently where he announced us as Irish. He knew we were English. And when we shouted, we're not Irish! <laughs> Well, I didn't. I am Irish. But yeah. then he said, um, this, this is the sea band from Wales. And Dave then shouted, I'm from Northampton. <laughs> but he wasn't having it, you know. <laughs> he wanted us to be anywhere else but England. <laughs> and are these perceptions the same when you're performing here in England or in Scotland? Go on, Sam. I do think it is interesting just how separate the scenes really are sort of musically and and in terms of crossover of personnel i think it is kind of weird and i think also it's only in very recent years that we're starting to see some cross pollination and some sort of cross appreciation but i mean i remember when bellowhead used to go up to edinburgh or glasgow if we were selling a thousand tickets in england we would sell 40 tickets in scotland and it was only by our very last tour that we were selling four or five hundred tickets in glasgow not enough people in England know what you mean by English music as a phrase. It doesn't carry any of the resonances that particularly Irish music does. But if you haven't got some sort of narrative that you can put to people that they can relate to, it's very difficult to get them to book you. <laughs> and it's very difficult for them to sell. We're quite clear that we're English and we're from England, but I probably push it less than I used to. I used to be evangelical about it. And now I'm possibly more interesting just presenting it as traditional music. We talked in the first episode of this series about English music being associated with violins, but so is Scottish music and Irish. Do you think whether a piece of music is regarded as English or something else has anything to do with the instrumentation? 
the fiddle has such a strong connection to the music of Ireland and Scotland that people, they sort of want you to be that and sound like that and play like that. And we would get requests, wouldn't we, Rob, when we were having our fish and chips in the back of this pub and playing tunes. And we'd get requests for the sort of the classic Irish or whatever tunes. And so, again, just by saying that I'm an English fiddle player, it's essentially going, I don't do that. And indeed, I can't do that. It's a very, very different skill set, I think. That was The Sailor's Wedding, performed by the C-Band. I'm interested in how we learn traditional music in England and how this might differ to what happens in Scotland, for example. Sam, what's your experience of this? There has never been so many people playing English instrumental stuff. And I guess I've come across that through my work with the National Youth Folk Ensemble, but also teaching quite a lot of things at Halsey Manor with Leverett or on Folkworks summer schools. My way into it was going on Folkworks summer schools and then teaching on them from actually quite a young age. If you learn a tune off a person, you get so much more than the tune. You get a little package of who the person who played the tune is at the point they play it to you, and then you can take that package on and wrap it up in your own style and pass it on. Quite a lot of English musicians now are being put in teaching positions or a lot of English bands are running teaching events. On top of that, a lot of those things, certainly things I do with Rob and Andy or with the National Youth Folk Ensemble, they are not about how to play this stuff only, but they are actually about how to find it, how to edit it and how to write your own. Let's talk about composition and what the performer brings to the music. Englishness in folk music isn't just about using historical English manuscripts, but also, or in fact more, to do with how we play it. We spoke to Jeremy Barlow in episode one, who edited Playford's Dancing Master. Sam, I believe you also started your journey with English repertoire there. I was 15, got the Playford collection for the first time, and much like Alan, I sort of treated it like the Bible, and I didn't want anything to change, because I'd never found a traditional music I could inhabit before. And then... (laughs) Starting to work with people like Rob and stuff, and I guess just getting a bit more mature. That's all gone now for me. And actually, most of the stuff I listen to will be American or whatever, or indeed pop music. And all of that feeds into how I treat 18th century tunes. I think this is one of the things as well that both academics and researchers and also the musicians, practical 
professional musicians appreciate is that so many of these libraries and archives have now digitized their collections. And maybe it's the case that 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible for most people to access this material. And now with initiatives like the Village Music Project and the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library putting so much of their stuff online, it's now possible. And during coronavirus has been a lifeline for so many people. I certainly wouldn't have been able to do half as much research if there wasn't so much online these days. Some of those collections, the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library, you can see the original transcription or the original page from the historic tune book that was scanned in, it takes away that impression it's easy to get that if it's on the printed page, it's the Bible. You know, it's official, it's unchangeable, immutable. I think it's really helpful to see a place that you get a tune from as a source and a starting point, but not the end point. And I think the online availability of material not only improves access to it but it improves people's perception of what is official if you like. Thinking about taking music from an English tune book and doing something more with it than just what's written on the page I asked Sam to play us the tune Mr Isaac's Maggot. This is the tune we heard at the very start of this episode. I'd like to hear how Sam gets from what's on the page in The Dancing Master to how he performs it. So you know instead of just having three static minims to start... Uh, you know, you might play um, with that little pulse in it, or you might subdivide them so, like, have or stuff like that. Um, and those rhythms that just seem a bit, a bit uh, unnatural. That's written with the. Um, they've just been straightened out from semiquavers to quavers to keep the flow of the tune going. So. Oh dear. Um, but you see what I mean? I asked Sam to do the same for the tune Speed the Plough. If I were to play it for you now, how I know it, it would go something like this. sort of thing um it's one of those tunes that i know so well i don't even know if i could write it down because it's i probably play it different every time um and i guess that's because the skeleton of the tune is so 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 simple i've been looking at historical tune books made or published in england and while tunes in these books from other countries are often categorized by nation for english music they're more likely to be categorized regionally I asked Sam if he had any thoughts on how regional styles influence English music. England, because our written sources are so stark, I mean, there's so little ornamentation, no uh, articulation really or anything like that written, very little anyway. I wonder if a lot of English musicians feel lost or unable to do stuff with this music because we don't have those accepted 
styles or we've lost those regional styles, whether if they existed or not. And so actually translating dots into music is harder for English people because we don't know what we're aiming for. I'm very cynical about sort of regional styles and whatever, and certainly the Irish tradition. As a young man, I lived in the west of Ireland for um, many years. If you look uh, to speak to the older players, it seems individual players had far more influence with their social contacts. And because traditional music in any country is, is partly to do with a, one of the attractions is a sense of place, people tend to exaggerate that sense of place or want there to be a Clare style or a Donegal style or whatever. I think one of the joys of English music is we're not constricted by that. I mean, John often tells me I'm not allowed to play roles as an English fiddle player, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, but I am allowed to do the Nashville shuffle, whatever that is. But anyway. Yes, he's told me that as well a number of times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd love to be able to do the Nashville shuffle. Later on, I asked Sam to demonstrate for us what the Nashville Shuffle is. That thing that we were talking about, um, the Nashville Shuffle, as John Offord calls it, I think that is what is happening here. So you get separate, separate, and then slur, separate, separate. So two quavers slurred together, followed by two separates. I think we all agree that for English music and also folk music in general, it's always about what you do with the tune, what's beyond the dots. It's all about the interpretation. I think we would all accept that there is a general attitude that English tunes are more boring than tunes from other places. A tune as simplistic as Davy Davy Knickknack, that's what it's known as now, cannot have been boring. Or I was looking through a bunch of 18th century manuscripts the other day. There's this tune in there in loads of them called, the, is it the Slingsby Allemande? And it's in every 18th century book you can look at. And it's hopeless as a melody. It's rubbish, but it's in all of the collections. So it must have been cracking or there must have been something really appealing about it. I think a big part of the difference between a tune on the page, which looks rubbish, and a tune that you play that just feels amazing to play is what you do with it beyond the page. But the fiddle player playing that tune would be doing this constant bowed shuffle that would just give those, you know, the simpler the tune, the more of that you can do and therefore the better it is. Looking to the future then, what direction do you think we're going in next with English music? I just feel that perhaps some kind of English aesthetic identity, I don't know, might be, it probably won't be for another 20 years, but I think we'll start to see something maybe forming more than we've ever seen before, but probably not for another two ge generation or something, I don't know. This is the tune Drops of Brandy, performed by the C-Band. Thank you to our speakers today, the musicians Sam Sweeney, Rob Harbron and Alan Lamb. Next time is the third and final episode of Folk Tunes and Englishness, when we'll be turning our attention to the borders of English folk music, both geographically and musically. If you want to find out more about these topics, or my knowledge exchange work with the University of Oxford and the English Folk Dance and Song Society, Google Knowledge Exchange and follow links to Oxford's Torch website. 
And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this podcast, which will help others to find it. This podcast was produced by Birdline Media.